From the beautiful city of Hollywood, we bring you Film Forward, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. Hey, welcome to Film Forward, everybody, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. And it is that time of year again, Film Forward's best of 2021. But before we get into it, if you like what you hear today, please subscribe to Film Forward on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from for weekly episodes. We not only do our patented Gimme Three episodes like we're doing today, but we also interview filmmakers with new theatrical releases. And of course, we highlight all things LADFF. As I mentioned, though, this is our now annual Gimme Three episode, our favorites of the year that was... 2021 and a pretty damn good year for cinema and we're joined once again by film forward producers my wife and ladff festival director sonia maru and my podcast wife anselm kennedy thank you both for being here thanks for having us thanks nick glad to be here how was 2021 for y'all i mean it was interesting still yes uh, we're, we're still in a world of uncertainty uh <laughs> but at least we could come back to the cinema a little bit more. Exactly. Yeah, it was amazing to be able to go to the movies again. Obviously, that was huge. Besides that, we got married in 2021, so I can't really complain. We pulled off a wedding during a pandemic. (laughs) Right. Could have been worse, I guess. Definitely. It was a hell of a year for movies, as I mentioned, and we got a lot of uh, great ones to get into. So let's start it off. We're going to start it off with Sonia. Let's get your first pick of 2021. Oh, hi. Okay. So as you know, I've been doing my movie minutes. So there's a lot of movies that I really loved this year that easily could have been in my Gimme 3, such as Come On, Come On, or Nightmare Alley, Spencer, Licorice Pizza. But figured I'd talk about some newer stuff that we hadn't talked about on the show. So my first pick is Parallel Mothers, which is by Pedro Almodovar, who's probably like the most famous Spanish director, at least for American audiences. And the film stars Penelope Cruz, and it's about two women who meet in a hospital because they're giving birth on the same day, and their lives become intertwined as a result of that. I picked this movie, one, because I just think Almodovar's probably one of the best filmmakers ever, and I wanted him to be on our list. (laughs) But I also just think it's really fun to watch his movies over the years because he collaborates with the same actors, but also um, composer, DP, production designer. You know, he has like a team that he keeps coming back to. Penelope Cruz, I think this is her seventh or eighth film with him. Mm-hmm. And he also has like these really strong stylistic elements that are very Almodovarian, like <laughs> the color, I think I just made up a word, uh, <laughs> like the color red, right? Like we were watching Parallel Mothers and I'm like noticing this red toaster that's in the main character's kitchen. And I'm like, oh, if I was Pedro Almodovar's production designer, every time I see something cool that's red, I would buy it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And just like collect it. Right. You know, or same like if I was a costume designer or whatever. So yeah, he has like these things that he always comes back to that are his signature. And he's like really interested in mothers. Mm -hmm. But each of his films is so unique at the same time in terms of what it's talking about. And this was no exception. It was like a very 
surprising movie, very kind of suspenseful, really sweet. And then on top of that, he was able to also tie in like the individuals and the country, like the emotions of the country as a whole, like still dealing with the Spanish Civil War. Yeah. So yeah, I just thought it was masterful and great movie. Yeah, as you mentioned, the film is full of surprises and like changes emotional direction like multiple times. You know, at first it feels like it's going to be kind of like a fun comedy, lighthearted like piece akin to like early Almodovar. And then it goes into this like really dense, nerve wracking like mystery and drama. And then it rounds out with something like completely different talking about, you know, like the history and the Spanish Civil War and you know, a lesser filmmaker, that would be a total mess. <laughs> you know, it'd be like, what, what this, this movie's all over the place. But in the hands of uh, a master, it feels so seamless and so perfect and seems like there's no other way that this movie could be than the way that he made it. And it's uh, all the more impactful for it. When we saw this movie, Penelope Cruz was doing a Q&A and the moderator asked her about Almodovar's like, you know, creative obsession with mothers because so many of his films, that's like a, a big theme. And she just said, I think it's because like he loves his mother and like the relationship with his mother is so strong and he wants to like pay homage to that. She talked about meeting Almodovar's mother a couple of times and those are like really great and sweet stories in it. It was fun to hear about Almodovar's mother and his relationship with her because it like, humanized this uh, genius. It was really sweet. Yeah, that was really sweet. I mean, and also she was talking about like how he sends her his scripts, not his mother. He sends his script. Maybe he does too. (laughs) He sends his scripts to Penelope Cruz and just how like cool their collaboration is. And I was Mm -hmm. like, I want to go like to dinner with them so bad. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's what I was thinking about the whole time. An incredible film as always. Uh, Anselm, you did not see this one, correct? Not only have I not seen that movie, I I'm realizing I've never seen anything by Elmo the Bar, so I'll have to add him to the filmmaker watch list. There you go. You know, 2022, is that the year we're in? Maybe yeah. do uh, one Almodovar a month. Okay, there's enough? There's at least oh, yeah. 12? Okay, oh, God, perfect. Yeah. But it's an incredible film. I believe it is still playing in select cities, so if you haven't seen it, check it out. If it's not playing in a in a theater near you, it will be available for uh, streaming soon, I'm sure. Parallel Mothers by Pedro Almodovar. Excellent first choice, Sonia. Anselm, it's time for your first choice. All right. Well, I believe it was Sonia last year that chose movies based on performances. Mm. Is that correct? Yeah, probably. Okay. I think I'm always obsessed with performances. I realize as someone who knows nothing about how to be an actor, I always am like talking about the actors first and foremost. Well, I mean, very much the same. I I don't know much about the acting process, but I do think that... uh, They just read, they read lines and stand on marks. That's pretty much... Oh, that's it? That's That's it? That's the slow and skinny of it. Okay. I think that I'm finding that that's the strongest connection between the three movies I picked this year was actors' performances. And my first film in that series is Tick, Tick, Boom!, It is a musical drama directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda, which is his directorial debut. Mm -hmm. And it's based on a musical of the same name, which is a semi-autobiographical story about Jonathan Larson of Rent fame, uh, writing a musical to enter the industry. And the first and foremost thing that I took away from 
this film was Andrew Garfield's performance. He's the lead and gives such a thrilling performance that's like determined, it's sad, it's funny, it's charismatic, and so much more. And after seeing him in Under the Silver Lake, I have pretty high praise for Garfield, and it was the main reason that I went into this movie, because I, I knew nothing about Jonathan Larson going in. I'm typically not a fan of musicals. I used to, I won't say hate, but used to strongly dislike musicals, but have kind of since warmed up through a series of just really good musicals that I've seen. You've been living in West Hollywood for five years also. That, I know, that might yeah. have something to do with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> I was going to say, and you're a musician. And that's why the dislike for musicals was so out of character. I think it, it's just the elements and tropes of musicals that I dislike over musicals themselves. Because yeah. yes, music is deep in my veins. But uh, yeah, this this one was kind of a shot in the dark. And the fact that it landed in my top three was surprising even to me. The story is so powerful, even knowing nothing about it. I know there are a lot of people that found the film powerful because of their connection to Jonathan Larson and musicals and all the homages that they play in the film. Just everything about it was surprisingly amazing to me. Garfield was great. And then outside of that, Robin de Jesus, uh, who plays Michael, I think gives one of the strongest moments in the film. Yeah. I think all in all, this film is a reminder that I should step out of my comfort zones in films because sometimes I'll find one of my top three of the year because of it. There you go. We're expanding. Yeah, it's growing, um, if you will. Yeah, when we watched the film, I the Robin de Jesus, the actor who played Michael, that kid is magnetic, man. Like I could not take my eyes off of him and like he just lights up the screen like I thought that performance was out of this world Andrew Garfield is incredible all I mean really everybody in the film is good there's no yeah. there's not a single uh, bad performance in it but Michael really showed me something that I was like whoa god I looked him up after and I guess he was in the stage production of In the Heights so he had okay. worked with uh, Lin-Manuel before you know on the stage but not uh not on the screen so this was uh their first collaboration in a, in a film, but a lot of tremendous performances. I loved, especially in the, in the second half, there was a lot of like really cool elements they did with the musical numbers. Like, especially one of my favorites is when he finds that song, you know, he's like doing the swimming laps and he like, you know, the, the, the song comes to him yeah. and it's in the, pool. the music on the bottom of the pool. Yeah. Yeah. That was so awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That was really cool. That was like so creative. Like, how did they think of that? <laughs> I also really like this scene where he and his girlfriend are kind of like having it out, like their, you know, big fight moment. But then it's like intercut with him and Vanessa Hudgens, who's not his girlfriend, like performing the song about it during the play of Tick, Tick, Boom. Mm -hmm. I thought it like balanced it out of like making the scene like more fun, but also more sad <laughs> at yeah. the same time. I also really loved the sequence when Michael's character, this is at the beginning, I don't feel like I'm giving anything away. Michael's character like moves into a really nice apartment mm -hmm. and it's like the juxtaposition between like Andrew's like kind of <laughs> slummy tenement apartment, AKA like exactly where I grew up. So, you know, I have a soft spot for it, but then yeah, he like goes in, into this beautiful apartment and yeah, I love that whole sequence. It was great. 
Tick, Tick, Boom, a really fun watch, a really fun musical, and some really amazing performances by Lin-Manuel Miranda. It's available to stream right now on Netflix, so check that out. And from one autobiographical story to another, my first pick is an Italian film, Hand of God. Before I start, I'm just going to say that I am going to be giving spoilers. So if you care about spoilers, you know, you could either fast forward through my talks or pause it and, w- and watch the film if you if you plan to watch these films and come back to it because uh, it's impossible for me to talk about this movie and any of my movies really without uh, giving spoilers. But anyways, here we go. Hand of God by Paolo Sorrentino of great beauty fame. And this film is essentially a retelling of him as a 17-year-old teenager, which is when his parents died. And the film really just feels like a long memory. And it all is told from the perspective of Fabietto, who is, you know, essentially Paolo, who's kind of an unreliable narrator. Everything is told through, like, the perspective of a 17-year-old boy and a horny 17-year-old boy at that, you know? There's like certain things in the film, like hallucinations or, you know, the way that all the women are shot in the film and especially like his relationship with his aunt that are like, this is not a reliable uh, interpretation of what actually happened, but it's perfect because it's all told through this 17 year old's uh, story. At a certain point in the film, this like directionless kind of like dependent, very innocent teenager loses his parents and the film changes drastically. Everything before that feels very warm, bubbly, like all the characters are lit like beautifully. There's like a lot of laughter and uh, Fabietto almost feels kind of like an afterthought to all these other characters because there's so many like lively, vibrant characters. And then after the parents' death, that style just like comes to a screeching halt. The camera work becomes more aggressive the lighting introduces like all these chiaroscuro elements. And I mean, the movie just becomes painful at that point and understandably so. And in that pain, you see this character, Fabietto, become, there's this evolution with him. And the question that the film brings up is, would Fabietto have become this like passionate artistic being had his parents not died? Because like once his parents die, he like, decides like he needs to find his direction and he needs to like do something that like, you know, uh, gives him purpose. Had his parents not died, would he, would that have happened? We don't know. There's also like the title hand of God comes from the soccer player, Maradona and a very famous play where he like scored a goal with his hand. And that play is like a key element in the film. The film's theme is essentially like pursue what makes you happy. And the film opens with a quote by Maradona where he says, I did what I could, and I don't think I did so badly. And I think that is like a strong and powerful and beautiful theme for this film. The film is just like chock full of like a whole bunch of symbolism and and stuff that I had to look up after the fact because my Catholic days are are long behind me and I'm not like so in tune with uh, Italian culture history. But uh, once I looked up that stuff, I was like a whole bunch of other crazy cool stuff in the film, but Hand of God, a masterpiece by a master himself. Yeah, it's funny. I meant to look up. There's like this really crazy, bizarre sequence in the opening of the film. 
And I kept meaning to look it up where this woman basically meets like a, a tiny monk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, what the heck? But didn't know the meaning. Loved it anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that that's that whole sequence, the aunt who has, she has some mental health issues. So we're presented that scene at kind of face value, but because it's told through Fabietto again. So it's like he believes her because he's a 17-year-old boy. But if you rewatch the scene, there's a whole a lot of elements to clue you in to the fact that it is a hallucination. That, that's, that is not real. And San Gennaro, the saint who takes the aunt to go meet this monk, is a saint that many Italians pray to, to like search for guidance against, uh, you know, like the will of God and to you know, she's trying to have a baby. So that's why she hallucinates San Gennaro helping her. But that monk shows up at the end of the film also. And I I thought that was kind of like a nice little nod. The monk like takes off the hood and it looks like it could be either a young him or a young Maradona or both. Um, And so he like kind of finds the hope and, and the prayer in him, in himself, a whole bunch of fun stuff like that. It's just like, God damn. How beautiful. And, I, and it's about him. Yeah. It's, it's his story. It's like, as we'll see with some of my other films, like it takes a lot of courage to tell such a personal and, and beautiful story like that. Yeah, that's, that's definitely true. Yeah, I, I heard even like the, some of the crazier or more, like more far-fetched things like really were true, like that his brother went to um, audition to be an extra for like Fellini. Yeah, he went and met him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like all sorts of stuff. Um, Ansel, did you see this one? I didn't get a chance to. This is no worries. One, yeah, this is one that I wanted to because it was on Netflix and uh, was did have the ability to uh, watch that as opposed to some of the other ones because of screeners and everything. But uh, it's just, it's been a crazy past couple months. Yeah, you've been working on a feature yeah. and moving and moving. And, <laughs> and it's, been a uh, lot. Yeah. Well, now you know how it ends. Uh, <laughs> right. it's, it's, uh, it's the journey. It's, it's the, the journey, journey, not the it's, destination. Yeah, yeah. For sure. For I sure. I mean, you, you, you mentioned uh, the, the spoilers coming throughout all of these, and I don't really have the luxury of uh, fast forwarding or uh, <laughs> skipping ahead yeah. uh, in the editing and listening process of this podcast. So that's true. That is I'll, true. I'll just, uh, you just I'll t- blank you, it out. You I'll just blank it out. You just take those spoilers. Yeah. Okay, so that's it. Hand of God by Paolo Sorrentino, and it is on Netflix and I think still playing in select theaters. Check it out. Just a tremendous, tremendous piece of work. Sonia. So my next film is also on Netflix. So I guess Netflix put out some good movies this year. Who knew? And actually, I did speak about this film on a movie minute, but I thought it was good enough to talk about it again. And that is The Power of the Dog, which is by Jane Campion and was shot in New Zealand, but set in Montana. And it's based on a novel, which apparently is incredible, but I haven't read yet. Essentially, the story centers around the main character, Phil Burbank, who's played by Benedict Cumberbatch. And he and his brother, who's played by Jesse Plemons, are cattle ranchers. And Jesse Plemons, he ends up marrying Kirsten Dunst, who plays Rose and brings her and her young adult 
older teenage son, Peter, into this cattle ranching household where they totally don't fit in. She's a very sensitive and, you know, kind of like maybe emotionally brittle person. <laughs> like she feels like she could break at any moment. And then Peter is, you know, a, a gay young man, which you know, I think can be difficult in the rural West nowadays, but this movie takes place in the early 20th century, so much harder. And he definitely does not fit in with the rancher scene, which is, you know, hyper-masculine. And Phil is kind of the king of the hyper-masculine men. So he kind of takes it as his job to harass and humiliate Rose and Peter. So that's kind of the setup. I don't really want to give away the ending because while the journey is great, I think the ending is really cool to discover on your own. But I will say it's super suspenseful film. You know, it like might look like, oh, it's like a period drama or it's like kind of a Western. But like the thing that I took out the most from it, like genre wise, is like how suspenseful it was. I was Mm -hmm. like, oh my God, like, something terrible is going to happen. And that's just kind of how you feel. Yeah, and I I think... Oh, did you see it? Yeah, I did. Uh, I I think that's completely due to the score. The score is so phenomenal in this film and it really sets you on ease from the start. Yeah, I was actually going to say, and I, I agree totally, like, it's like, you know, there's obviously a lot of elements, but the score is a huge part of that. And um, it's another one of the amazing scores of Johnny Greenwood, someone who's seeming to become one of like the masters of film scores. He did three of my favorite movies this year. He did Licorice Pizza, Spencer, Mm. and um, Power of the Dog. Spencer is also like crazy suspenseful, um, even though that kind of looks like a period drama as well. There's a lot under the surface. But yeah, I mean, I just, and I just want to shout out Cody Smith McPhee, who plays Peter, because he blew me away. I'm yeah. like his president of his fan club now. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. Uh, I don't really have much to add. Like, as you mentioned, uh, I think this film should be seen and the ending should be kind of discovered because it's so uh, breathtaking. We had the pleasure of seeing this on the big screen at the Chinese theater, and it was just like, absolutely gorgeous gorgeous to look at it is uh one of the best shot films of the year i think yeah and i was i was also like thinking i mean jane campion is like you know such a master of her craft but even like the tiniest parts in this film are played by like incredible actors phil's parents phil and um jesse plemons parents are in it for like one scene it's keith carradine and now i'm forgetting her name even though i adore her francis mcdonald is that her name yeah, from Probably. Six Feet Under. I don't think that's... Her name is Frances. But uh, yeah, the mother from Six Feet Under. And Thomas and Mackenzie is in mm-hmm. it in like this super tiny role. And you're just like, everybody wanted to go to New Zealand and be part of Jane Campion's movies. Like, I'll be like basically an extra. Yeah. That's great. Absolutely. Anson, what'd you think? I thought it was a very, very interesting watch because this was something that I didn't know too much about the plot. I had really only heard kind of polarizing opinions of the film. People loved it or hated it. I don't think there's really a middle ground for this film. 
And yeah, just the suspense element of it was something I wasn't expecting, but was pleasantly surprised with. And of course, don't want to give away the ending and follow suit with Sonia. But I think the journey was one of the more interesting ones that I took in the cinema this year. Power of the Dog by the legendary Jane Campion. It is available on Netflix and playing at your local cinemas. So check it out. And if you can't check it out on the big screen, it is worth it. Anselm, your second pick, sir. My second pick is Coda, written and directed by Sean Hader. It stars Amelia Jones as Ruby, the only hearing member of a deaf family. She works on a fishing boat with her dad and brother as part of the family business and plans to continue that job full-time after finishing high school. She plans to embark in the family business for the rest of her life. She doesn't really have an alternative plan since her family is really all she knows. She is an outcast at school because of this family life and unique dynamic that most teenage kids don't have growing up and joins the choir, which becomes a long and uh, tedious process, but then it's determined that she actually has a great voice and uh, her teacher, Mr. V, starts to grow her as a singer and initially pairs her with her crush in traditional coming-of-age kind of rom-com fashion for a duet, and they start practicing for the upcoming recital. The family business starts struggling as she spends more time pursuing music and her teachers encouraging her to go to Berkeley. So it's a balance of her work life at home with her family and being a teenage girl who's pursuing music until they both become increasingly difficult and start to drastically interfere with each other. Overall, it's just a a really heartwarming coming of age story and films that incorporate. And as I mentioned, like musicals aren't my favorite, but my favorite film genre is movies that can incorporate music, but not be full blown musicals such as like Inside Lewin Davis, other movies in that that genre. Um, So this one does it really well, towing the line of like story elements and music incorporation and just overall coming of age film elements. What'd you guys think? Yeah, I thought Coda was great. It had been on my watch list for, you know, a year since it uh, played at Sundance last year and was kind of like the big, you know, hyped movie. But yeah, so I was glad you picked it because I was like, oh, good. Now I'll finally watch it. (laughs) There's so many movies. (laughs) No, I thought that there's actually another movie that I think Nick is going to talk about that also has a performer who's deaf. And I mean, I know that the main character in Coda is not deaf, but uh, there's a scene where she's singing, but she's signing at the same time. And I thought that was just like such a powerful scene to see her like communicating in these two different languages, you know, simultaneously and how that kind of represented like that she has to like live in two different worlds, but that she shouldn't have to, you know, we should make sure that everyone can communicate. Yeah, the the, the communication between the two lines of her signing and her singing and just throughout the film, that scene specifically is really powerful, but there's an amazing balance of her two different worlds that she lives in and how to 
cohesively make them work together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We actually had a film, a short film in the festival last year called Coda. It was also about a child of deaf adults. Um, And she was a dancer, not a singer, but similar themes. But I also just wanted to mention that the man who plays her father, Troy Kotzer, I think is how you pronounce his last name. He was just so great. Like I was Mm -hmm. like, can I just watch the dad do anything? Like I love him so much. I mean, I love the whole family, but I just believed he was that person. I didn't question it for a second that he was like a fisherman. (laughs) You know, he was so great. And I listened to an interview with Marley Matlin, who plays the mom. And she said that he was like sneaking in swears in his ASL, like constantly, (laughs) (laughs) and just like basically dropping F bombs, like in the scenes. (laughs) And I was like, of course he would. He's so great. I love him. Yeah. (laughs) This was uh, a really heartwarming, heartfelt, and inspiring movie. I mean, it's just, it's, uh, get your, get your tissue box, uh, and get ready for a cry in the best way before seeing it. Somebody, I told somebody that was about to watch it and they were like, Oh, you'll love it. They said, uh, it's the best way I can describe it is like, it's like a great Pixar movie in live action. I thought that was like, okay, that's a (laughs) paints a picture in your head. And it was uh, pretty, pretty accurate. It's just lovely, wonderful characters, super strong story. The singing's great. It's got my boy Eugenio Debez in it, uh, who I've had the pleasure of working with, and he's uh, hilarious and brings so so much light. Was he Mr. V? Yes. Okay. He has a great performance as well. Yeah. Just top to bottom, it's a delight to watch. The film flies by. Great, yeah. great movie. Also, now two years running, I've picked movies about musicians and hearing loss. Uh, I, I, my point. I noticed that. Last, <laughs> so. last year, you had... Um, Sound of Metal. Sound of Metal and this year, Coda. So we'll have to see what comes out this year to keep that streak alive. Yeah, we'll keep repping the deaf community here on the on the film forward. Coda, excellent, excellent film. A great watch. It is available on Apple TV streaming platform. If you don't have it, it's worth doing the trial just to watch this film alone. Okay, my second pick is the film Flea from... Which country is it from, Sonia? Sweden? No. Uh, Denmark? Denmark. It's from Denmark. Denmark. It's produced by Jamie Lannister, among other people. You don't know Game of Thrones, but... I don't. He's a, he's a very well-known Danish actor. Gotcha. Well, Flea is by uh, filmmaker Jonas Power Ramosen, and he actually comes from the radio world, which plays into how much of a tremendous interviewer he is. But um, essentially, Flea is an animated documentary, which we don't see too many of. It's a story about a child refugee. We meet Amin Nuwabi as an adult, and he is telling the story of how his family fled Afghanistan and they go to Russia, which proves to be just as horrifying of an experience. And they need to get out of there for several reasons also. They can't go back home because that's a a nightmare over there. So as a family, they plot to get their family members out one or two at a time. And it's just like heart-wrenching as all of this is happening because in many cases, and this is, you know, what's what's so like heartbreaking and like nerve-wracking about this story is you're seeing this 
the story of this family play out and they're like losing family members and they're not knowing if they're making it or not. And you're just like, my God, this is happening all over the world and has been happening all over the world forever. It just rips your heart apart. You know, ultimately the film is just about loss. This boy loses identity, loses his home, loses his family and loses himself. The film is about the struggle to f- try and find that again, try and find himself. And uh, I think prior to making this film, Amin had never told his story before or not so like cohesively, like top to bottom, not even, I think, to his partner and soon to be husband. So as an audience, we're going through this emotional journey with him where he has to come face to face with these like, traumatic experiences and like in the beginning of the film like Amon says like I'm gonna have to go slow and I'm gonna have to take my time and the filmmaker doesn't shy away from those moments where Amin needs to take a break and like you know he's revisiting these moments that perhaps he hasn't revisited in his mind since they happened and we see the effect it has on him even in animation it's just like so powerful the animation in no way minimizes the weight of what is happening in, in this story. Like you almost forget that you're watching an animated film. That's how like engrossing this story is. But from time to time, the filmmaker does choose to like change up the animation style. And those choices are beautiful. And it reminds you like, oh fuck, yeah, watching an animated film. But it is uh one of the most powerful, powerful documentaries I've ever seen. Really powerful story. And to bring some cheer into it, there is moments that are very uplifting. And also this film has my two favorite needle drops of the entire year are in this one film. Check it out. It's got everything. It's it's just so, so beautiful and so breathtaking. Sounds fascinating. Nick, I have so many things to say, but what is a needle drop? <laughs> That's my first thing. I was going to ask what are the two needle drops? The, a needle drop is uh, a phrase for when the needle drops on a record. Uh, music song cue. Yeah. Uh, and my two, the two needle drops are one is the beginning where it picks up with Amin as a boy. And he's running through uh, his town of Afghanistan. And he's wearing his sister's dress. One thing I didn't mention is that Amin is gay as well. So in addition to dealing with all of his losing his family and losing his identity... He's also dealing with the fact that he uh, is gay and he really can't tell his family. So the first needle drop is him as a boy wearing his sister's dress, running through the town, listening to Take On Me by AHA. And he's just like has that song on on his Walkman and he's just like dancing through the city. And it's like so sweet and endearing and it just like is so like uplifting and it makes you feel like so carefree, like you're a child with him. Uh, it's just beautiful. And then uh, the second needle drop is, I don't want to give away what is happening in the scene because it is one of the most impact. I'm going to try not to tear up even just talking about the scene, but it's a Daft Punk song. I forget which song it is, but it's a Daft Punk song. And he's older, like as a teenager, and he's going to a club. But those were two absolutely tremendous needle drops that both brought like tears and butterflies into my body. That one with the Daft Punk was like my favorite scene in the movie. Yeah. I mean, that being said, it couldn't be your favorite scene if the movie hadn't done everything it did up to that point. Sure. But the like amount of relief that you feel for him at that mm-hmm. moment is like so intense. Yes. Well, I just wanted to note before I saw Flea, Nick 
was invited to see it at like a press screening at a super fancy like private club screening room in LA. And, you know, usually these things are followed by some kind of cocktails or, you know, appetizer, some kind of reception, right? And, you know, we all love free food, especially fancy free food. I think it's half the reason why people go to some screenings in LA. And Nick is no exception to that. But I talked to him afterward and he's like, I walked out of Flea and there was just all this like lavish brunch, like laid out just the like excesses and like delights of the world. And he's like, I couldn't eat it. I just had to leave. (laughs) I was so affected by this film. It just seemed frivolous. And then like two hours later, he's like, oh man, I kind of wish I had eaten that food. It looked really good. (laughs) But I was like, wow, that is like the most compelling review I've ever heard for a movie. What could make you turn that down? It must have been so affecting. Mm -hmm. It really is. I also wanted to make a correction. Producer of the film is not Jamie Lannister. Jamie Lannister is a character on Game of Thrones. The producer is an actor who played Jamie Lannister named Nikolai Koster-Waldau. The other producer is Anselm's favorite, Riz Ahmed. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. No, everything about this sounds phenomenal. I can't wait till it's uh, more readily available and I can watch it. This will be at the top of my list. Flea is playing right now in uh, theaters, uh, wide release actually, which is rare for, uh, for a documentary. But check it out on the big screen if you can. And if not, I think it should be available streaming soon. We're going to take a quick break, everybody. When we return, we're each going to give our final picks. Give me three of 2021. We'd like to take a minute to talk about LADFF sponsor E-Minutes. E-Minutes is a corporate entertainment law firm that handles the corporate minutes for more than 38,000 entities involved in the entertainment industry. Like last year, they're sponsoring an award with the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival called the Emerging Filmmaker Award. You can learn more about our partnership with E-Minutes Arts and their mission to amplify the voices of underrepresented storytellers at eminutes.com forward slash arts. That's eminutes.com forward slash arts. All right. Welcome back to Film Forward, everybody. We are here with Film Forward producers, Sonia Maru, Anselm Kennedy, and myself, Reach doing our picks. Give me three of the year 2021. Thus far, Sonia has given us some great films, Parallel Mothers and Power of the Dog. Anselm has given us Tick, Tick, Boom and Coda. I have given us Hand of God and Flea. And now it is time for our final picks. Ladies first, Sonia, third and final. Well, my final film is Red Rocket by Sean Baker. We actually recently had Drew Daniels, the cinematographer, on an episode of Film Forward. So you guys had such an incredibly interesting and insightful conversation that I would really encourage everyone to listen to that (laughs) because I probably don't have a ton more to add other than my opinion, which is that I really loved this movie. But one thing I really liked about it is that I didn't love it when I saw it. It was actually kind of an interesting experience where we saw it with a couple of friends. There was like five of us total seeing it opening night in theater in Burbank. And we were all like Sean Baker fans, like 
super excited, anticipating this movie. We went to see it, went out for like some food afterward and didn't talk about the movie at all. (laughs) I was like thinking about that and I was like, God, did like nobody like this movie? And then the next day and for like days and days after, I just appreciated and liked the movie more and more. I think because the main character, and I'll talk about, you know, what he does or what, you know, what the film's about in a second, he just really upset me. (laughs) And I couldn't like really feel good after I left the film. It wasn't until it kind of sat with me that I, you know, truly appreciated it. And yeah, that's because it's about like a washed up porn star named Mikey Saber, who after a seemingly a sort of successful run in LA in porn has hit the skids and is now going back to this small town in Texas where he grew up outside of Galveston. And he basically shows back up in town and uh, expects everybody to treat him like he's like a celebrity. But it turns out that he kind of like left a lot of disaster and like damage in his wake. And then even in coming back to town, kind of starts trying to, with some success or not, ruin the lives of everyone he meets. (laughs) And the term that they use to describe him in the film, which I had never heard, is that he's like a suitcase pimp. He's like homeless, right? Like he just kind of like goes in and like, is like parasitic almost, right? Like it just goes in and moves into wherever he can like maximize his um, kind of like exploitation of the situation. Mm -hmm. Now that being said, he's played by Simon Rex and he's like super funny and like very charming. Oh yeah, I could totally see how people would be taken by him. But, you know, ultimately it's just a really sad story that I think we all know like happens in real life all the time. (laughs) And, you know, it's not a movie, so it's not funny. (laughs) These people don't get to say cut and like go back to their real lives. But I think it's a great movie. I think Sean Baker has like a true gift for telling stories that feel real and using actors that are not recognizable or maybe people who have never acted before. And I really appreciate that because it's nice to watch a movie and not be like, oh, well, Kate Blanchett is giving a great performance in this role. Like it's nice to just believe that these people are real for the time being. Yeah, highly recommend it, but might not make you feel like amazing or at least not right away. Yeah. for I mean, from a technical standpoint and a lot of the things that I loved about it, again, we talked about in our interview with the cinematographer, Drew Daniels, who is a, a colleague of mine. But there's one thing I wanted to mention was actually something that Seth, Sonia's cousin, and he works with LADFF, brought up. We saw the film with him and talking about like this parasitic being. It seems that the film takes place in 2016, And the only hints are every once in a while from the television, you hear Donald Trump in the midst of his campaign and you hear like Donald Trump's speech or you hear the news talking about Donald Trump. So there was that very subtle connection of this character, Mikey, and that character, Donald Trump. And it's not a direct connection between those two people as like beings, but I think it was just like a general connection he was making about like society in that, uh, in general, that just like these people exist, you know, from the lowest levels in the smallest towns of this country to the highest levels and everywhere in between. Seth brought that up and it totally made sense and added new weight to the piece for me. That's a great observation. And it's funny, I noticed that while we were watching the movie, but then it, you know, I didn't remember it afterward. I didn't Mm. think about that afterward. Uh, Anselm, did you see this one? No, again, didn't get a chance for this one. But I do find it fascinating that Sonia, two of your picks have very, very unlikable characters because that was 
what I had such a hard time processing in Power of the Dog. And I think it took me until I watched it last night, took me until this morning to like put aside the fact that that character is so unlikable to be able to really appreciate all the other elements of the film. Well, look who she's married to, for God's sake. <laughs> a true sociopath. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. And well, no, I don't think you could extrapolate this to Mikey in Red Rocket, but I was like thinking about the power of the dog and like how we like dogs are so loyal, right? Um, and I think like the character uh, Phil is so loyal, like insanely loyal, right? He's like obsessed with someone who isn't even alive anymore. And he just has this crazy loyalty. But then like when they snap, they're so ferocious and scary. Mm. I don't know if Mikey is loyal like a dog. Yeah. <laughs> He's more like a cat, you know, they just use you for warmth and then move on. Red Rocket, it's an incredible film. Check it out. And it sticks with you. And it begs to be seen multiple times. If you're in Los Angeles, there's a gorgeous uh, 35 millimeter print playing right now at the Lumiere Cinema in Beverly Hills. I highly recommend watching it there. If not, it's playing at other select theaters and will be available streaming soon. It might be on demand now, but go see it in 35. It's worth it. Excellent choices, Sonia. Excellent choices. And now Ansem is going to round out his picks. Let's hear your third. My third and final is the only of my three that when I started thinking about what my top three for this year was going to be, was the one that instantly popped in. The others I had to do some searching and replaying and kind of ranking. But my third and final is Pig, written and directed by Michael Cernoski. And this is a movie that I definitely don't want to give away too much in case people haven't seen it, because it's one I think you should go in as blind as possible. That's what I did. I had very limited knowledge, but went in expecting one thing and came out with a completely different experience watching the film. So maybe this is one you skip ahead if you haven't seen it and are interested in seeing it. But the general synopsis of this is that Nick Cage plays a character, Rob Feld, who is a former Portland chef turned uh, recluse truffle hunter living his life in solitude with his prized foraging pig. And this pig seems to be his only friend or family member until one day the pig is taken from him in a brutal robbery. Rob then teams up with his main client that comes to the farm weekly to get truffles from the pig and Rob in search of who took this pig. And I guess mild spoilers, but going in, I thought this movie was going to be Nick Cage's John Wick. I thought Nick Cage was going to go on a, a bloodbath in search of this pig, but in reality, it's so much more of a down-to-earth film about intertwining of like characters' pasts and how they make up for it in their current life. Uh, this was just a movie that... Even though there were some exciting moments in the film, most of it's carried through with uh, nuanced dialogue and character moments and character growth and discovery. And uh, yeah, I was just enthralled the whole time, never really wanting to leave this world that I was just thrown into. And Nick Cage is, of course, an enigma, but uh, this is my favorite performance of the year. And I'm really excited to see 
what else he has going on in the future because I think he's kind of going through a little bit of a renaissance right now. Yeah, this is his best performance in, in years, likely. Yeah. I loved Pig also. I It's funny, I had, I guess it must not have been like super promoted because I wasn't aware of it when it came out or maybe because Nicolas Cage's movies have been hit or miss. I you know, just wasn't paying attention. I don't know. No, but. I, I think it definitely flew under the radar in terms of promotion because I had only heard about it through like some very niche podcasts about filmmaking. So it wasn't like I saw anything about it. I might have seen like one poster for it outside of a movie, but didn't see any real promotion for it. Yeah, yeah, same. And the poster is like super gnarly. <laughs> You're like, what is this like horror movie? Yeah. But I actually heard about it on a podcast also, but it's um, a food podcast on KCRW called Good Food hosted by Evan Kleiman. And she interviewed the director, Michael Sarnowski, and um, I think and the, maybe one of the, the other writers or producers. But yeah, so it was like totally approached from the food angle and how like there's kind of three chapters of the film and each one is introduced and framed by a recipe or a dish. Yeah. And yeah, so that's kind of like was my introduction to the film. And uh, I was like really excited about it just from the food angle. I was like, I don't even know what this is movies about. I don't know what the tone of it is. But yeah, it was like really surprising. It was kind of like in a cool way, hard to define. It was suspenseful. It was funny. It was really touching. It's a little violent. I really liked it a lot. And I also, I think my favorite scene was the scene when they go into like the restaurant where it's like the super pretentious deconstructed food that like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you're just like, oh yeah, it's so silly. But yeah, I thought it was a lot of fun and it made me really want to eat truffles. Yeah, I, I'd say definitely don't go into this film on an empty stomach for more than one reason. <laughs> yeah. Can I do my Nick Cage impression for this film? Is it, where's my pig? Yep. <laughs> where's my pig? Where's my pig? Yours is much better than mine. <laughs> so good. Big. It's on Hulu. Check it out. It's great. And says a lot about food culture and what is really important about food uh, and what it touches on. And much like my last pick, it's it's also a film about, you know, a man who has lost something dear to him and how he deals with that. My movie, my final movie is Drive My Car by Hamaguchi, a young but brilliant filmmaker And his film is mostly based on Haruki Murakami's short story of the same name. And this film follows Kafuku. I think that's how you say his name. Sorry, I'm butchering probably a lot of these names. He's a theater actor and a director. And he's married to a film screenwriter, Otto. And when we meet them, they had already lost their four-year-old daughter years earlier. She like died of pneumonia or something. And when we meet them, the wife is having an affair with one of the actors from her show and rather than confront her kafuku seemed he just like chooses to like let it pass he sees it he doesn't mention it there are moments where it seems like maybe she wants to talk about it but before they do she dies this is not a spoiler this happens it's in the log line she passes away and kafuku's left with no child no wife survivor's guilt and a lot of questions And he just has to keep on living that way. And from a plot standpoint, that's really what the film is about. We just follow this man 
as he continues to live his life. He goes to uh, Hiroshima to direct a play. And because of an eye problem, the theater company like insists that he needs a driver to drive his beloved red Saab, which I've never seen a red Saab like look so gorgeous in a film before, but uh, this is like treated with such love and care in this movie. So the driver who is this young woman and Kafuku uh, connect, they develop uh, a friendship, a very quiet, very patient, very like respectful friendship that is based on pain and guilt and loss. And there are a lot of beautiful connections with not only that character, but a lot of the other characters in this film. This film is like filled with these rich, vibrant characters. Each of them teach us so much about their world, our world, pain, grief, love, art. Like it's, it's hard to discuss this film in like a short breath because it's about so much and it touches on so much. You know, by the end, I think like the main character, you're just, you're left with a lot of questions and a lot of feelings. And the filmmaker just says, here, feel all that shit. Now go live your life. And you're like, thanks. (laughs) Um, But it is... uh, it's an existential journey, unlike one that I had seen in possibly forever. Like I'd never seen a film like this that like impacted me in this way. Uh, as soon as I got home from watching it, I went to order the book Mirokami's uh, short story collection that this film is based on. I had to order it from Europe. It took me two weeks to get it. As soon as I got it, I just devoured it, and it made me love the the film even more. It is a masterpiece, to put it mildly. By far my favorite film of the year and perhaps one of my favorite films ever. Amazing. Sonia, what did you think? It was okay. No, I'm just (laughs) kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) I loved it. I was just moved uh, listening to you describe the film and like reliving all of the scenes in it. Mm -hmm. I don't really have much to add other than a few like anecdotes, which is, I have this problem where I watch movies and when people are in cars and talking to each other, I'm like always sure that they're going to get into a car accident because they like are not looking at the road or they're just something artificial about a lot of driving in films. And uh, this has the best driving stuff I've ever seen. I don't mean that in like a fast and the furious kind of way, but I just (laughs) meant I always felt very safe when I was Mm -hmm. in the car (laughs) in this film. And that is a point of pride for the, the woman who plays the driver is that she is like an incredibly smooth and safe driver that puts people at ease when she's behind the wheel. But yeah, I mean, it was just an incredible movie. I think the other day you said that the book, but I guess also the movie makes you realize all of the things that you've been carrying in your breast pocket. Mm, I think that mm. was the metaphor that you used. And I just knew exactly what you meant. Yeah. Like we carry everything around with us, but we, you know, you can only like process it in like small pieces. <laughs> yeah. It's a great movie. You know, the runtime is rather long. Everyone who I've talked about this film with, I said, don't let that, you know, deter you because it was a, it did not even feel like a two hour movie. 
even though it's, I guess, maybe almost three hours long. Yeah, it's three hours. Yeah, it didn't, it maybe felt like a two hour movie, but it felt like a very good, well paced two hour movie. Whereas I've seen two hour movies that feel like five hour movies. <laughs> so yeah. I hope it gets awards and is seen by as many people as possible. Drive my car, check it out on the big screen. It's, uh, I think they just uh, expanded the theatrical release in Los Angeles, Chicago, and New York. They definitely did in Los Angeles. I live in Los Angeles. I know that much. Um, so if you're in LA, go see it on the big screen. Yeah, it's a film that that needs to be seen, and I would I would love to to hear your thoughts. So so let us know what you think. Let us know what you think of all these films. Sonia and Anselm, excellent choices. It was good year for cinema, I think, and it was good to be back in the cinemas. And it was even better to talk cinema with the both of you. Thanks. It was great, Nick. Yeah, I agree. It was great. And, you know, I was thinking like last year was cool because a lot of more indie films were getting like attention because the studios were holding back their, you know, bigger releases or like bigger releases were put on hold because they couldn't finish on time because of COVID or whatever. But this year has been like an amazing balance of like the Spider-Mans, the Dunes, you know, these like big movies and these like smaller and foreign films and i feel like they're like all part of the conversation and getting attention so that's super exciting to me yeah as it should be you know there's room for both and both offer something so check them all out just go to the movies uh and have a great time and and have a great 2022 and hopefully you know if 2021 wasn't uh wasn't your jam hopefully 2022 is and uh, if 2021 was your jam hopefully you get more of the same but in any case, uh, we thank you all for listening to Film Forward, and we'll catch you next time. Our recording engineer and mixer is Anselm Kennedy. The podcast is produced by Anselm, Sonia Maru, and yours truly. Thanks for joining us on Film Forward, and you'll hear us next time. <laughs>